trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to Wrong Thinkers of All Shapes, Sizes, and Skill Levels. You have come to the right place uh, to examine what's happening around us, free of media filters, free of ideological fetters. I'm joined by fellow wrong thinker, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, great to catch up with you once again. Oh, ditto. Likewise. Glad to be back. Well, it's a year down the road. I was looking at some of my uh, my Facebook memories that had popped up and went, oh my gosh, it's been a year since the real craziness started. I yep. wanted to just kind of touch base with you and say, okay, we're a year into the Rona pandemic. Uh, talk to me about uh, what we have learned in that time. Well, there are a number of things that stand out. I think probably the first, and it's a very depressing thing, is how conditioned to obedience and servility uh, many Americans have become. And it merely manifested with the Rona. Um, It existed long before that. You know, you and I, before this ever happened, used to talk on the radio about um, security kabuki at at the airports where people just will line up and willingly uh, stand there with their legs apart and let a government goon Uh, put their hands not only in their own private parts, but in the private parts of their wives, girlfriends, children, and old people. And that's been going on now for 20 years. So is it altogether surprising that people were willing to put on face diapers and accept being locked down? What an awful term when you think about it. Locked down, free people, not in prison, who've not been convicted of any crime, are now locked down inside their homes and locked out of their businesses. This sort of thing has been routinized because people have been habituated to it for decades now. That's that's the first observation I'd make. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, you know, at the time, there was a lot of unknown, and I know a lot of us were just kind of like, oh, how is this going to shake out? Mm-hmm. We've had ample time, though, to see what works and what doesn't. And it's crazy to me that I still hear, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci and others talking mm-hmm. about, well, now we may have to re-implement more lockdowns because we don't mm-hmm. know what's going to happen. And, and I think, how tone-deaf could they be? Well, I'd like to talk about something that bears on what you just said. We hear a lot of, um, of, of uh, people talking about how we need leaders and leadership. Isn't it the obligation of a leader to not give in to panic mongering, to not react uh, uh, on the basis of hysteria, but to calmly uh, analyze the situation, look at the facts, and then come to a sensible, measured conclusion based on the facts, rather than just going off uh, half-cocked, unhinged, and yet that's exactly what happened. And it has been accepted, and I find that to be intolerable. I wrote an article this morning that just got published uh, about that, about how I believe it's incumbent upon all of us to no longer accept that, that it's time to, to behave like adults and not like panicked children any longer, much less give in to panicked children. No, I, I completely agree. You have an article here about uh, weaponized hypochondria and how we mm-hmm. beat uh, weaponized hypochondria. And I was really encouraged when I saw that headline, by the way. Mm-hmm. Ha- have we truly beat it, or, or is this still kind of a process in motion? 
Oh, it's by no means have we beaten it. Uh, I do see signs, however, of it wearing thin, um, both informally in terms of the number of people that I see who are either not wearing the holy face burqa or who are wearing it below their noses, as you and I talked about, uh, and just sort of going through the motions, uh, as well as formally. You know, there's been a lot of good news over the past two weeks. A number of states, including Texas, uh, have rescinded almost all of the, uh, the previous mandates that were imposed on the population. Even Maryland, which was one of the most belligerent states, has dialed back a lot of its mandates as well. But I think we still need to get to the kernel of this, which is to question such things as mandates. The very word is obnoxious, or should be, to a free people. This idea uh, that government bureaucrats or even elected officials can, without benefit of law having been passed, simply issue decrees, open-ended decrees, based on nothing more than their say-so, which we, the serfs, are somehow bound to, um, to obey. That that is an outrageous and contemptible notion in a, in a free country, and that that has got to be challenged if we're ever going to cure this sickness. No, I, I'm with you on that, and and I'm starting to see some signs. You know, I mean, I I know people are fatigued, and I know that they they are ready to take off the the face masks, but it's weird in the population centers, and I live in a pretty major population center in mm-hmm. in Utah. Um, the, the obedience is still, I, I don't know, maybe it's an authority thing, but I see more people, probably 90% still, as they're out and about, mm-hmm. putting their masks on. It's, it's Like you say, it's almost a habit. But I did have a, tra- uh, a chance to travel to the uh, hinterlands <laughs> over the weekend, mm-hmm. and it was like a return to normal. I can't tell you yeah. how crazy it is to walk into a grocery store and look around and realize, wow, 98% of the people here are not masked, and nobody's yep. having a single problem with it. Yeah, it's a psychological thing, and I think the duality is a function of the fact that the conditions are different in urban areas as opposed to suburban, let alone rural areas. You've got a lot more latitude in a rural area. I have, for example. I live in a rural area, and people tend to be more independent and independent-minded. They tend to live um, on acreage, and they, they tend to not be compelled to go into these dense urban areas where all of these mandates were first imposed. Uh, and so they were not habituated to the wearing of the face burqa. This, um, this psychological thing is something that people should look into. There's, um, there's a principle or there's a practice. I forgot what the, what the correct term for it is, but it's something called fear-based trauma conditioning. And, and essentially, that's what the American people have been subjected to for the past year. They have been terrorized uh, about a virus that doesn't kill 99.8-something percent of the healthy population and constantly lectured and hectored about not only their own risk, but about how they're horrible people if they don't subject themselves uh, willingly to every mandate and edict that issues from every tyrannical busybody politician that they must close their businesses, destroy their livelihoods, destroy their lives, destroy the lives of their children for the sake of this virus that doesn't kill 99.8 something of the generally healthy population. Speaking of busybody politicians, I'm guessing you either uh, saw excerpts or maybe you saw all of President Biden's speech last week. I'd love to get your reaction on his uh, uh, promise, in quotation marks, that if we behave ourselves, we might get to come out of our room for a little while on July 4th. Well, to be honest with you, I can't abide listening to the mumblings of that that senescent creature that that occupies the White House right now. Uh, But, yeah, I got the gist of it. And, again, how did we arrive at a point in our history where we are beholden to this one man or the handful of people around the country? If you think about it, if you take into account every state in the country, all the governors, the handful of people that are in the uh, positions of authority – 
you got a few hundred people, maybe a thousand people or so, decreeing to 330 million people what they're going to do without even benefit of the law, just on their say-so, because I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper and here you go. You know, that, that is a reversion to something that hasn't existed in the West for hundreds of years, you know, outside of aberrations like what went on in Germany during the war. But previously, it was a characteristic of Western civilization that you had representative government, you had laws that were passed, you had due process of law. You did not have uh, these people just hurling fatwas, as I like to put it, and were somehow bound to obey it. And that's the sad thing to me, that so many people don't question it, that they just say, okay, the governor saith, the Gesundheitsführer told me, so I'm just going to destroy my business, I'm going to destroy my life. I'm going to trauma condition my children by putting on a, put, making them wear a mask and, and giving them the impression that death is in the air everywhere. It's horrible. I was, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up on the break here in a couple of minutes, but um, to give you an example of how disconnected from reality uh, these policies have made people, I have some good friends that I knew when I lived in St. George, Utah, who flew to Hawaii uh, back on March 5th, and they were supposed to come home on the 11th. Before they left... They had to take COVID tests before they flew out of Las Vegas. And interestingly enough, uh, my, my friend Charlie, he, uh, he tested positive. Now, he had had corona. I mean, legitimately had it back in mm-hmm. December, but had recovered from it. And so uh, they, he was still given clearance to fly. But once he and his wife got to Hawaii, they are now not allowed to leave because there's confusion with all the bureaucracy, all the various health departments and so forth. They're not sure that he's really good to go. So Charlie and his wife, Sarah, are stuck in Hawaii on their own dime for an extra mm-hmm. two weeks. Their kids had to go home alone. Thankfully, they're grown-up kids. But, um, you know, there, there's just this huge bureaucracy. And, and the, the comment that my friend's wife made was, she says, no matter who we talk to, it's very clear, they just don't care. Their job right. is not to help us. It's to categorize us and tell us, get back in line. Yeah, the common threat here is arbitrary rules mindlessly enforced by authority uh, that there's no recourse to. And what does that remind you of? That's what happens when you get convicted of a crime and are put in prison. The guard says, go here. The guard says, stand there. The guard says, you may do this, you may not do that. Uh, it should be something repellent and anathema to free people to be treated like prisoners. Agreed. We've got to take a very quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I have uh, links to his website as well as to a couple of the articles we're discussing today in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please uh, consider stopping by there. Click on the links. Better still, just bookmark Eric's website on your own browser and spend some time there each day. I promise it'll be worth your while. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also by Monticello College, HSL Ammunition, and Pure Light, the next generation of light. We've got uh, Eric Peters from epautos.com on the line with us. And, Eric, I was telling you before the break about uh, my friends who uh, traveled to Hawaii 
a family dream vacation, but one negative COVID test has sent them into um, confusion and chaos. Their kids Mm -hmm. had to be sent home alone. Uh, My friend's wife, who tested negative for COVID, nonetheless was put on the CDC's no-fly list. And and, and here's the crazy thing. So my friend Charlie was supposed to stay until yesterday, yesterday being the 15th. Sarah has to stay until the 25th. She's never even had a positive mm-hmm. test, but the, the mm-hmm. health department in Hawaii is saying, nonetheless, we're going to keep you until the 25th. And again, on their dime, not on the state's sure. dime. My, my friends are having to pay this out of their pockets. Sure. As we discussed, uh, it's an example of this arbitrary, mindless authority that is imposed. And as we got to talking about a little bit off the air and we can talk about now, uh, it's being imposed on people like your friends by government officials who, of course, do not impose these things on themselves. We have so many examples of this. I think most people who are listening to the program are well aware, for example, of the uh, of the spectacle of Gavin Newsom locking down the state, closing businesses uh, and requiring people to wear masks. Meanwhile, he gets caught uh, hanging out with a bunch of his cronies in a restaurant without his mask on, having a nice dinner that we're not allowed to have. And on and on and on it goes. Uh, You know, the the people who are issuing the mandates uh, have decreed that they themselves are essential, and of course their paychecks are essential. They get paid. They don't have to worry about paying their mortgages and feeding their families. They're free to travel at our expense on government-provided transportation. But we're the the cattle, the prisoners, uh, the people who wear the yellow star on the armband uh, and who are just allowed to do this or not allowed to do that. And the kicker is we get to pay for it, too. Yep. And we and, and there are people, there are politicians and bureaucrats who expect us to look at that and say, thank you, sir. May I have yes. another? <laughs> yes. It's, a, it's startling. That's, I guess, what frustrates me the most as an American. Isn't this supposed to be the place where people question authority uh, and demand an answer, demand a good reason for being told that they have to do something or not do something before they just do it because somebody says so? You know, they say jump and you say how high. How did Americans get to this point? Agreed. So uh, let's let's touch on this just for a moment longer. Um, we're, we're starting to emerge from the woods, or at least it appears mm-hmm. that there there are some cracks in, in the wall that's been built around yeah. us here. What do you recommend for people going forward to keep that momentum so that they don't lose their what remains of their freedoms? Well, first and most importantly, question everything that you're being told and that you hear. Uh, ideally, turn off the the mainstream organs of propaganda, which is what they are. That's not a pejorative. That's descriptive. Uh, The general press now has simply become a a, a PR agitprop combine, and you can't expect to get reasonable uh, analysis, much less news, from them. Um, Meanwhile, also, uh, assert your right as a free American to associate with the people that you want to associate, to not put on that loathsome, awful face diaper, face burqa, unless you absolutely have to in order to function. And even then, apply as much resistance to it as you possibly can. Get together with like-minded people and socialize. That's extremely important during this dark period that we're in where we've been atomized and isolated and made to feel afraid of one another. Shake hands with people. I, you know, I, I think you and I talked last week about an experience that I had with a stranger that I met at a supermarket, and he wasn't wearing um, a facial covering, and I walked up to him and I said, it's great to see your face. And the first thing that man did was he thrust out his hand and we shook hands uh, the way human beings used to do, and it felt so good to do that. And I think anybody who's listening to this who has the same experience will, will feel the same way. Those are just a few things that I would recommend. 
I don't know, Eric. That sounds uh, pretty Neanderthal, you know, shaking hands and everything. That's not very evolved if you get my drift. Actually, it's very evolved. It's civil. It is what makes us a civilized society and not a fearful society, terrified, unreasonably terrified of other people. That's, that's not healthy. You cannot have an operating society where people are afraid of each other and feel anger toward each other for no good reason, because they've been terrorized by the, by the government, by the, you know, the very entity that is allegedly, supposedly there to protect them, but which is doing precisely the opposite. It is oppressing them using fear to coerce their obedience. Yeah, and that's a, that's a pretty poor motivator. Let's uh, let's shift gears here for a moment. Uh, you spend a lot of time writing about uh, automotive issues, mm-hmm. and uh, you have an essay recently about uh, what is meant by a safe car. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a really interesting question um, that I explored in that article. Most people hear the term a, a safe car. They hear about government safety mandates, and they equate that with a car being dangerous or not. But it's really not the case. The, the thing that defines whether a car is safe or not, in my opinion, is whether it's roadworthy. If a car is unstable, unpredictable, tends to crash, then of course it's unsafe. Um, but if you don't crash it, it's not unsafe. I, I, back in college, I drove a 74 Beetle. I drove it for a number of years afterward, too. Uh, by, by government standards, it's an extraordinarily unsafe car. But somehow I didn't get a scratch while driving that car. So in terms of everyday reality, it was every bit as safe as something like a Mercedes S-Class. Ironically, a Mercedes S-Class from the same period, this would be the 90s, and this is a big, heavy car for people who aren't familiar with it, and a very safe car would be considered unsafe by the latest safety standards, which it's just essentially a matter of whether a car complies with all of the minutiae and regulations that spew out of the DOT as far as what new cars must have. And they've made cars very heavy, they've made cars very expensive, and in, ironically, in a number of ways, in my opinion, made them less safe by encouraging drivers to not be attentive, to not drive their cars safely. And if you wreck, no matter what safety devices you have, you've done something that's not safe. The most, uh, the most advanced safety feature, in my opinion, isn't technological. It's the person behind the wheel who Amen. pays attention to what's going on and controls the car and doesn't piddle with his cell phone or his touchscreen while he's driving. You know, Eric, I, I've uh, used your logic a number of times over the years to, uh, to blow a few people's minds and to, uh, well, it, it, frankly, it upsets them. But I think you're still right when you talk about the person you need to worry about on the road is not the person who is driving fast. Because that's a person who most likely has their head in the game. They're paying attention to what's yep. going on. They're paying attention to traffic. They're looking for cops. They're you know they're yep. they're actually very actively involved in what they're doing. It's the slow yep. pokey, distracted. Where was it? Oh, is that my turn, driver? That uh, absolutely. That's the one that puts us all at risk. Sure. You know, there's an interesting analogy here, analogy that you can make to get back to the Rona thing too. You can do a lot more for your risk in terms of getting sick by taking good care of yourself, by maintaining a a good body weight, eating healthy, exercise. Uh, And in the same way, you can reduce your risk of being uh, the victim of a crash by just being an attentive driver rather than relying on these externalities, relying on the car to keep you in your lane, lane keep assist, relying on technology to brake because you are too busy doing something else to pay attention to the fact that the traffic ahead of you just slowed down. Here, here. Now, the police officer doesn't want to hear that. 
and frankly, my wife probably doesn't want to hear that, but I think, I think you're absolutely right. But you know what? A lot of police officers know that perfectly well. You know, they go through the motions. It's another form of kabuki. They know it. You know it. Their job is to enforce laws and in some cases uh, to literally meet their quotas. Uh, you know, this is not a that's not a, a, a fictitious thing. Uh, a number of uh, departments around the country require their officers to write a certain number of tickets per day or per week. And if they fail to do so, they get docked. They don't get advanced and all of that. Got about 20 seconds here, Eric. Talk to me about your website. Tell our listeners what they can find it and where they, what they can find there and where they can find it. Sure. It's epautos.com, and I like to call it the web's best libertarian gearhead site, uh, partially because I think it's the only libertarian gearhead site on the net. But um, it's, a, it's a really fun place to come if you're interested in anything having to do with vehicles, anything having to do with mobility and transportation, new cars, old cars, motorcycles, and also these topics that we bandy about, philosophical topics, moral topics, about the proper role of the government in a society and the obligations of the individual and all of those other types of things. Eric, thank you, as always, for making some time to chat with us. We'll talk again next you week. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I kind of hate to go here because this this is going to sound like, oh, I see we've got uh, the negative Nelly bonnet on today. But uh, I think this needs to be talked about a little bit. Article in the American Conservative by uh, James Bovard. The headline, Will FBI chats, in quotation marks, send conservatives to prison? This is, uh, this is a very legit concern. And, uh, you know, I, I know there, there are probably good people who work within the FBI. I've seen firsthand some pretty ugly evidence that the FBI, while, while they may not be the de facto secret police of the post-constitutional America, they're missing a pretty good opportunity, though, because uh, the way that they act, you know, with, with no requirements uh, to, to record interviews and, and the ability to prosecute people, if you give them a statement that they say, well, that's false, or you changed your, your tune here, they have a terrifying amount over citizens. And this is what James Bovard is warning about. He says, across the nation, FBI agents are swooping down upon conservative activists, Trump supporters, anyone suspected of any tie to the January 6th clash at the Capitol. By the way, I appreciate the fact that he's calling it what it was rather than the deadly insurrection at the nation's Capitol, which apparently was the uh, talking point sent out on uh, the, uh, the memo that went to most of the MSM. Nonetheless, he he says, conservative author Candace Owens tweeted on March 3rd, about 10 of my friends who attended Trump's speech but did not go to the Capitol building thereafter have had the FBI turn up at their door to ask them why they went to D.C. And her conclusion is, our FBI is trying to scare conservatives against ever gathering in the future. Now, James Bovard says, actually, the, the potential problem is far worse for people targeted by the feds. FBI chief... Uh, Christopher Wray, who's scrambling to deliver the indictments that will please his congressional overlords, says the agency is conducting 2,000 domestic terrorism investigations. 
And James Bovard says few Americans recognize how badly the legal playing field is tilted against them. When FBI agents knock on their doors, many Americans won't hesitate to open up because they assume that those who have nothing to hide have nothing to fear. But along with bureau procedures that are a travesty of due process... He says the FBI is exploiting a sweeping law that criminalizes casual comments. Federal agents have the right to lie to you and then put you in prison if you lie to them. Any citizen who even makes a single word, no or yes, false utterance to a federal agent, faces up to five years in prison and a $250,000 fine. That's harsh. Now, so the federal false statements law conveys so much power that according to Clinton administration solicitor general Seth Waxman, federal agents can escalate completely innocent conduct into a felony. One federal judge condemned the law for encouraging inquisition as a method of criminal investigation. Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, dissenting in a 1998 Supreme Court case that upheld the law, warned that it can result in government generation of a crime when the underlying suspected wrongdoing is or has become non-punishable. In other words, you could be not guilty of a crime, but they could still go after you and say, well, you're guilty of lying about the same non-crime. That's scary. But James Bovard says it gets worse. You don't have to actually lie. Cardinal Richelieu is said to have declared 400 years ago, if you give me six lines written by the hand of the most honest of men, I will find something in them which will hang him. Well, FBI agents have an easier task than the Cardinal since they can fabricate the sentences they use to legally destroy their targets. The legal fate of individuals who talk to FBI agents does not depend upon what they said. Instead... Are you sitting down? It hinges on what FBI agents claim, they said. FBI agents don't have to read a Miranda warning to people whose lives may be destroyed as a result of an interview. See, unlike many other law enforcement agencies, the FBI rarely videotapes interviews, thereby permitting agents to create the narrative or facts, which can then be used to charge individuals with false statements. A 2006 confidential FBI memo justified prohibiting recording because perfectly lawful and acceptable interviewing techniques do not always come across in recorded fashion to laypersons as proper means of obtaining information from defendants. Initial resistance may be interpreted as involuntariness and misleading a defendant as to the quality of the evidence against him may appear to be unfair unfair deceit. <laughs> may appear, really. Agents have been taught at the FBI Academy that targets of investigations have forfeited their right to truth. Interesting. But lying during interrogations? Well, that could look bad to jurors who didn't graduate from the FBI Academy. Bovard says refusing to record interviews or make a transcript maximizes the FBI's arbitrary power over private citizens. Instead, while one FBI agent asks questions, another FBI agent takes notes, which are later used to write a summary in a memo known as a 302. Just as an aside, it was falsification of these uh, Form 302s that ended up uh, being partly responsible for why the case against the Bundy family was dismissed with prejudice back in 2018. So this isn't just a theoretical thing. I've, I've sat there in the courtroom and watched how it played out. It did not leave me with a particularly high um, estimation of uh, the FBI based on what came out during that trial. And FBI's contemporaneous notes are widely held up in court as credible evidence of conversations. 
That's according to the New York Times back in 2017. Boston defense attorney Harvey Silver, Silvergate, Glate rather, the author of uh, Three Felonies a Day, noted that 302 forms are notoriously unreliable. He derided the FBI's refusal to record interviews as foul play that allows the FBI to manipulate witnesses, manufacture convictions, and destroy justice as we once knew it. It's extremely difficult, says James Bovard, for individuals to dispute the ex post facto assertions in official FBI memos, thus explaining why some lawyers refer to 302s as perjury trap forms. If the FBI shows up at your door, says James Bovard, they are not there to commiserate with you about all those bastard liberals in Washington. How might the interrogation go if you attended Trump's January 6th speech but did not march to the Capitol? You have nothing to worry about, right? They ask uh, why you went to hear Trump. You tell them it's because you're a patriot. They ask a few more questions about your political beliefs. You proudly reply with the first thing that comes to your mind. And then they ask follow-ups that make you realize they have every message you ever sent via parlor. What about your raging post-election messages, the agents ask. You shrug and offer what sounds to you like a passable defense. And then the agents start quoting from all your postings on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh Uh-oh. Well, what I meant to say, uh, but the messages you sent to your hardline Facebook buddies were private, right? Nope. Facebook speedily turned over haystacks of private data to the feds after January 6th. Perhaps the agents will ask exactly where else you went in D.C. if you were one of the hundreds of people whose financial transaction records in the Washington area around January 6th were provided to the FBI by Bank of America. And by the way, your memory better be perfect. None of the questions from the preceding hypothetical interview indicate that you committed any crimes. But if the FBI 302 says you contradicted yourself or misstated facts, you could simply become another bureaucratic scalp and a stepping stone for the agent's promotions. Does that not send a little chill up your spine? And it's, this, this shouldn't leave you feeling fear like, oh, the boogeyman's coming and you're waiting for the knock on the door. This should be... You should probably understand what you need to do ahead of time, whether that means, look, if you don't have a warrant, I'm not answering questions, or I won't be answering any questions in your presence or talking to you without a lawyer present. I mean, the situation's going to vary, but I'm saying, if you have an attorney, you might want to just war game that one out and kind of walk yourself through what's a proper way to respond, rather than just talk freely and assume that, hey, these guys are here to just help me clear my good name. Because I think what James Bovard is pointing out here is probably more likely the reality. They're not there to, to clear your good name and, you know, pat you on the back and say, well done, patriot. They're there to find a reason to hook you up. James Bovard says, as criminal defense attorney Ken Popat White uh, observed in 2017, FBI agents are trained in two dozen ways to ratchet up the pressure on you without getting out of their chair. Verbal, nonverbal, tone, expression, pacing, subject changing, every trick that any cop ever used in the box. White scoffed at the naive folks who bare their souls to G-men who flash a badge. Do you know every federal criminal law? Have you applied every federal criminal law to every communication and meeting and enterprise you've engaged in in the last five years? Wow. Don't believe the game is rigged? Well, go tell it to General Flynn. When anti-Trump FBI agents decided to get Flynn, the newly designated national security advisor for Trump, two of them showed up for a supposedly brief casual chat at the White House. After the interview concluded, the FBI did not believe 
Flynn had lied. And by the way, he's got the link to the documentation for that. But Peter Strzok largely rewrote the other agent's 302 along with helpful edits from his FBI mistress, Lisa Page, to make Flynn sound culpable. And there's more to this, but we're going to have to get to that on the other side of the break. I mean, this is you may think, well, I don't run in those circles, and it's not likely the FBI would ever show up on my step. And I hope that's the case, too. Knock on wood, they haven't shown up on mine either, ever. But this is one of those times where you better look at what's going on and realize, I better be prepared just in case. Which is why I'm sharing this information with you. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing this article from James Bovard. This was published in the American Conservative. Will FBI chats... And chats, as in quotation marks, send conservatives to prison. You know, I I know a lot of people who went to Washington, D.C. for the January 6th rally. And uh, and they behaved themselves. And I think think the vast majority of people who were there did. There were maybe a few hundred who got rowdy. and And even of that, there was a tiny, tiny minority that forced their way into the Capitol. There were others who wandered in after the, uh, you know, the barricades had been removed and the, the velvet ropes had been set aside. They were actually waved in, and I've seen the video of it, of police waving them in, come on, go on in. But, uh, wow, you know, now we're being regaled with tales of domestic terrorism and a, a terrorist attack and insurrection, and we got to do something and put all these people away. Well, the FBI is the point of the spear for going out there and finding all of those suspects. So to to point out how that Form 302 can be abused, James Bovard is recounting what happened to General Flynn when anti-Trump FBI agents decided to chat with him briefly, casually, and Peter Strzok largely rewrote the other agent's 302 form about how that interview went, along with helpful edits from his FBI mistress, Lisa Page to make Flynn sound culpable. And by the way, the FBI also put forward a new 302 written six months after the Flynn interview, which relied on other agents asking Strzok what he remembered from the Flynn conversation. In May of 2020, the FBI claimed, well, we lost the original 302 from the Flynn interview. But for years, Flynn was dragged through the dirt in part because the FBI protocol banned any transcript of his interview. But the few criminal defendants, or few criminal defendants rather, have the resources to fight that kind of FBI shenanigans. And anyone who still trusts the FBI system of interviewing people should take note of what happened to Noor Salman, the widow of the guy who killed 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando back in 2016. She was charged with material support of a foreign terrorist organization and lying to the FBI about knowing about her husband's pending attack on the nightclub. The FBI vigorously interrogated her for 18 hours without a lawyer and with no video recording, threatening her with loss of custody of her infant son unless she signed a confession. Now, Salman, who reportedly had an IQ of just 84, initially denied any knowledge but then relented and signed a statement composed by an FBI agent. But the fabricated confession contained numerous brazen falsehoods that destroyed the federal case. FBI conduct in that case was suffused with deceit. 
Almost two years after the shooting and 11 days after Noor Salman's trial began, the feds belatedly admitted that the killer's father, Sadiq Mateen, had been a paid FBI informant for 11 years starting in 2005. Now, any conservative who hasn't been hibernating since last October recognizes that the Biden administration and congressional Democrats are pushing federal agencies to crack down far and wide on their political opposition. With Joe Biden denouncing the January 6th protesters as domestic terrorists and Capitol Capitol Police acting police uh, chief uh, Yoganda, let me try her name again, Yogananda Pittman asserting that tens of thousands of terrorists or insurrectionists attacked on January 6th. And of course, with congressional Democrats howling about traitors who challenged or criticized the 2020 election, federal enemy lists are growing by leaps and bounds. The FBI is among the most opportunistic bureaucracies in D.C., and they'll do what they have to do to secure budget increases. The FBI's, trust me, this is what I heard, 302 memo charade, is a key source of FBI's control over any American the feds choose to target. Bovard says the current system tacitly assumes that FBI memos are the ultimate source of truth, far more trustworthy than the mere words spoken by American citizens. Attorney General Eric Holder in 2014 issued a guideline pushing the FBI and other federal agencies to use video recordings of interrogations of suspects. But the FBI has almost completely ignored Holder's reform. More than 450 police departments in 50 states now routinely videotape interrogations. As the New Orleans Times-Picayune reported in 2011, a scathing Justice Department review slammed local police for not videotaping all its interviews and interrogations. Unfortunately, federal judges and Congress permit the FBI to continue to brazenly stack the deck against American citizens. So James Bovard asks, will conservatives and Republicans be wise and tough enough to push for curbing the FBI's vast arbitrary power? Justice Ginsburg aptly warned 23 years ago about the extraordinary authority to manufacture crimes. And he says too many innocent lives have already been vexed by pretending that bureaucratic memos are infallible. Dang, that is. Well, it's worthy of consideration. We'll just leave it at that. All right, just a couple minutes left here, but I want to uh, I want to I want to get this off my chest while I'm still tired and cranky. Daylight savings time, not a good thing. All right, thank you Captain Obvious. We we appreciate you bringing that to our attention. No, really, it's it's not just inconvenient. And I'm I'm I really am. I'm tired and cranky because my body clock is all scrambled right now trying to figure out, wait, what did did we get up at this time yesterday? That's <laughs> I'm I'm all confused. Thomas Knapp has a pretty good take on this, by the way. He says, March 14th marked the beginning of National Tired and Grouchy Week in much of the U.S. as we participated in the annual gimmick of springing forward to daylight saving time. Tired and grouchy people, by the way, don't drive as well, he says. According to a 2016 study by University of Miami economics professor Austin Smith, springing forward results in an average of 30 excess auto accident deaths at a social cost of $275 million each year. So why do we do it? Well, because the government says we should. Well, why does the government say we should? In theory, we owe the practice to things like a need for farmers to have more daylight during their waking hours or to energy savings from not needing as much artificial lighting during working hours in town. Now, if those sound to you like concerns from a century ago when society and commerce didn't run 24-7, when automotive lighting was unreliable and roads weren't very good, etc., bingo. 
He says the U.S. adopted daylight saving time in 1918. The whole thing was a silly idea. Even then, instead of everybody changing their clocks, people who really felt a need for more daylight during their waking or business hours could have just changed those hours. He says, once I read a mention, I don't know if it was true or enough, true or not rather, of a tower built on the cliffs of Dover in the early 19th century, staffed with eagle-eyed watchmen whose job was to warn of any impending seaborne invasion of England by Napoleon. As the story had it, the British government finally got around to decommissioning the facility five, or sorry, 150 years later, long after the invention of radio and radar, not to mention the death of Napoleon, had made it superfluous. Daylight savings time, he says, is even dumber than that watchtower. It's never served any truly compelling function. These days, its only beneficiaries are probably computer programmers who get a little extra work coding for automatic transitions to and from it, and funeral directors who get a few extra burial fees out of it each year. It makes a certain amount of sense that my clock and my neighbor's clock should be in sync with each other. But he says it makes no sense at all that both clocks and all others should spring forward by an hour in March and fall back by an hour in November. If state legislatures are going to prescribe time settings, each legislature should prescribe one setting applicable year-round. Amen. And amen. <laughs> I would be so happy to see that change. You know, I think about it, and, and, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm portraying myself as a bit of a victim here. I'm, I'm not a victim. But it gets harder every year. And it's probably, you know, this is the product of getting old and, you know, my body's natural circadian rhythms struggle to keep up with it. But even even the good one, you know, where you set the clock back an hour and get an extra hour of sleep in the fall when you fall back, even that one still plays Mary Hob with my, uh, my sense of what time is it? What do I need to be doing? And, and, you know, you tell me, if you're, if you're older than me, maybe you can tell. As we get older, do, do we need uh, that kind of regimentation, or do, do we get set on a clock, you know? Oh, it's 9 o'clock at night. I ought to be in bed by now. By the way, I am, I'm an early-to-bed, early-to-rise kind of guy, so that makes sense to me. All I know is whatever benefit it once had, I think it's probably outlived its usefulness. And there's talk, you know, every year, well, maybe this state's legislature will take it up. And uh, you know, it's it's been done in my home state of Utah a few times. I don't think it's ever really gone anywhere. Why can't we just apply the standard that, uh, for instance, Arizona does? And the crazy thing is part of the year they are mountain time, part of the year they are Pacific time. But they never have to worry about switching their clocks back and forth. And I think if the rest of the country would take a hint from Arizona and get on God's time, well, it really wouldn't lead to that much confusion. The crazy thing is, you know, I, I have friends and I have guests that uh, that live in, in Arizona, and when I go to, uh, to set up an interview with them, there's a little added level of complication. I have to kind of check and see, okay, wait, which, uh, which one are they on right now? Are they, uh, are they following Pacific time or mountain time? And, you know, it's, it's not necessary. That's the bottom line. Now, on the bright side, if you're one of those people like me who wants to be a little bit lazy and you don't want to fix the clock in your car, congratulations. It's right again and will be for the next few months. This is The Brian Hyde Show.